Hey, it's Robert. With February's shows in the books, all eyes are on March. Our theme next month is going to be popular. And we've got shows on the 14th of March in San Diego and the 15th of March in Denver. The show in Denver is actually going to be marking our seventh anniversary, seven years of the narrators. The show is going to be at Bumpport Theater at 7 p.m. instead of our usual 8 p.m. So make sure to arrive early to catch a full night of storytellers. We've still got a few screen printed posters from our friend Michael King, but they're going fast. So pick one up at either live show next month. Next storyteller. All right, next storyteller. Next storyteller. Our next storyteller. Welcome to the Narrators Podcast. This podcast collects stories that were told at the Narrators, a monthly storytelling event that features people telling true stories based on a theme. The story comes from one of our favorite storytellers, Joe Holland. Joe is a San Diego-based writer who has a knack for capturing all of the pain and hilarity that is so often wrapped up in family life. This story was recorded live on the 13th of December 2016 at Tiger Tiger Tavern in San Diego. The theme of the evening was Parents Just Don't Understand. Thanks, everyone. This is um, just a funny little story about when my parents tried to let me die. Um, So, I was nine when God first tried to kill me. At least, that's how I felt at the time. When you grow up devoutly religious, and through no fault of your own, your organs start exploding, there isn't much else to think. I would do anything to get out of school. I once leveraged a nosebleed into an early ticket home. My mom had to leave work to pick me up. I watched cartoons where it was safe, and even they were a testament to how awful the outside world could be. A combination of high anxiety and proneness to boredom made school hell. My sister and I felt like soldiers in the trenches of World War I, just trying to keep our heads down and think of home until we were there, or more likely dead. I got to the point where I'd even convinced myself that I was actually sick. So when my appendix ruptured in second grade, I thought, maybe I am faking it. That's what my mom suspected, that I was faking, or at least milking. She let me stay home for a week that time, and I lay on the couch, literally dying. If you're so sick, why don't you just throw up? I bet you'd feel better. A challenge wrapped up like advice. You're not sick unless you throw up. We're a simple folk governed by hard, fast rules. The only trick is figuring out what those rules are. Normally, I'd wait until she was about to take a shower, lock the door to our bathroom, which shared a wall with hers, and dry heave until I knew she must have heard something. I'd return to the couch and say nothing, as if the effort to speak was too much. But this time I was too sick to move. I lay on the couch and asked that we only not watch anything funny on TV because it hurt to laugh. Periodically, my sister would put me on a dining room chair and drag me across the carpet to the bathroom. I'd sit on the toilet and nothing would come out and she'd drag me back to my death couch to watch drama. For a week, she fed me ice cubes, dyed with food coloring to resemble something of sustenance, something like food. Blue, red, and yellow flavorless hunks of cold. It was all I could stomach. I put all the colors together in this one, she said, pressing a black block of death to my lips. (laughs) And I sucked it, a dark trickle dripping down my chin. 
She thought it would come out like a rainbow. But I might owe my life to her. My appendix had ripped and was slowly oozing its contents into my lower abdomen. I don't know why this happens. It's fairly routine, I understand. You don't even need your appendix, the doctors would tell me. Years later, in AP Biology, Mr. White said that you maybe do need your appendix and that recent studies have shown losing it can lower your life expectancy. <laughs> On hearing this, my friends pointed at me and laughed. <laughs> it was only after my mom tried to send me back to school that she realized something might actually be wrong. We drove over a speed bump on our way to W.D. Hall Elementary, and a spike of pain shot through my gut, the poison in me painfully shifting and resettling. That hurt, I said, and finally something registered with her, that something might actually be wrong, and she had my dad take me to the hospital. At least that's what I think happened. I might have died. Everything after this could be a dream. <laughs> Go ahead. Tell them what you have. Dad hands me a phone. It's my aunt. We're in the hospital waiting room. The power to the entire hospital has gone out for some unknown reason, and they're going to load me into an ambulance and take me to a better one, where I will be operated on. I look at him, unsure. He puts his hand on my shoulder. Tell her what you told me you have. I shakily take the phone, steadying my wheelchair with one hand, and groan into the speaker, independicitis. My head is full of patriotic school songs for a pageant in which I was supposed to play Benjamin Franklin. He puts the phone back to his own ear, laughing. Independicitis, he says, shaking his head in disbelief. What a dumb kid. The waiting room is dark and full. There's no TV and nobody is sure where to look. Soon I'm aware of a presence to my left. What's wrong with his legs? It's a small child who has approached me, maybe as old as me or a little younger. I look at her. She has those plastic bendy kid glasses, and her eyes are magnified twice their size. Nothing, says my dad. He's just so bad he can't walk. An exasperated mother appears and apologizes for her child's rudeness and hurriedly ushers her away. They sit at the far end of the room in a row of chairs by automatic glass doors through which I see an ambulance arrive. The little girl stares at me across the way, and her mom looks at me too, occasionally and sympathetically, I think. They look at my legs, still thinking me paralyzed, so I wiggle them, trying to blow their minds. <laughs> they yanked the thing out as soon as they could, but I had to stay for a week in the hospital to regain my strength. The first thing I remember when I regained consciousness is my dad saying, they should have taken a little bit more out of you and pinching my pudgy child belly. <laughs> they carted me into a white room and drew the curtain around me and gave me time to recover, gave me time to pee out the poison, I thought. I peed in little bottles with notches and units of measurement on the side that my dad held for me. He'd scream if I got pee on him, poison burning his hand, I thought. They hooked an IV to my arm because I still couldn't eat. My sister came to visit once, saw the IV in my arm and a bit of blood coming out of it, threw up and fainted. We were both hospitalized for a time. Once my second grade teacher came to visit me, she brought me pencils and two workbooks to do while I was bored. I didn't touch either of them. Some friends came with their parents and I did my best to smile at them. Though I couldn't speak directly after the surgery, I'd been intubated and my throat was too raw. My bedside neighbor was a grown man with a goatee and sunglasses that he wore even in bed in a hospital gown, reclined like he was tanning. He had ironically just had a, his appendix out. 
His popped when he slid his motorcycle on a rain-slick street. It feels so much better once it's gone, he said to me, smiling. Don't you feel better now that it's out? No, I wanted to say to him. I don't feel better knowing that at any moment my meat sacks might burst. You were asking for it. I just wanted to watch Pokemon. They discharged him but wouldn't discharge me until I shit. That's still the best way they have to know that everything is working properly. But I couldn't shit because I couldn't eat. And as long as I had the IV in, I didn't need to. In many ways, these were the best days of my life. <laughs> I got a lot of toys that year, more toys than any other year, and most of them while I was still in the hospital. A lot of Pokemon are strange animal-like creatures that can only say different intonations of their own names to communicate. But one of them is just an Earth cat named Meowth who in the cartoon can speak in a frantic and heavy New York accent for an unexplained reason. I got a plastic figure with a switch that made him speak, but someone in the factory got confused. And even though the packaging was in English, when I took him out, he only spoke Japanese. It was scary and foreign, like Mickey Mouse screaming in German, like he was possessed, and I remember him glowing in the dark on my nightstand, though nothing on the patch packaging mentioned this feature. Nurses wheeled around N64 stations on carts, and I would play for hours. I could beat Star Fox 64, hit reset, and beat it again. Isn't it hard to play games when you have that IV in your arm? A young nurse once asked me. I wanted to grab her by the stethoscope and pull her face right up to mine and say, Eating's for suckers! But I didn't, and I agreed to try to eat, and they ripped the IV off of me. They shoved a suppository up my young butt without my consent. <laughs> They did ask, but in terms that hadn't shown up on my vocab sheets. And I was shitting within the hour, and then I went home. And that was it. My belly button is partially sewn shut. I recently found Meowth in my closet of my childhood bedroom, and he still works. He garbles and slurs every now and then, but he works. Others on the internet have shared similar stories about getting a possessed Japanese Meowth. I feel safer knowing this. I'd like to say that my parents now flinch every time I sneeze or call an ambulance if my farts smell like I'm rotting inside, but they don't. I texted my mom about this incident, trying to remember some details. I got blunt one-word answers and no follow-up as to why I was suddenly interested in this period of my life. So maybe they learned something or at least feel guilty about it. Most of my ailments are mental these days. I'll text my mom when I'm feeling depressed or lonely and she'll invariably tell me to pray or go to church. She's forgotten that God tried to kill me however long ago. So no thanks about that. If you thought about it, you might understand. And so I text my sister, and she'll text back ice cubes, and I know that I'll be okay. Thank you. The Narrators is produced by Robert Rutherford, Mary Robertson, Aaron Rollman, and me, Ron Doyle. Our assistant producer is Sydney Crane. Our theme music is by Whalehawk. And our founder and executive producer is Andrew Orvidal. A very special thanks to our amazing sponsors, Illegal Pete's, Sexy Pizza, From the Hip Photo, and Renegade Brewing Company. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And join us at one of our live monthly shows, which take place every second Tuesday of the month at Tiger Tiger Tavern in San Diego, California, and every third Wednesday of the month at Bumport Theater in Denver, Colorado. Both shows start at 8 p.m. and are always free to attend. You can find us on Facebook or Twitter, and 
for past episodes, photos from our live shows, and a list of our upcoming events and themes, please visit thenarrators.org. Thanks for listening.